Dr. H. Slade, the world-renowned clairvoyant of Jackson, Michigan, is to visit the city of Syracuse. He will arrive Tuesday, June 18th, and remain six days at the Empire House. Dr. S. treats successfully all classes of disease. He is constantly receiving and curing hopeless cases from all parts of the United States. Give him a call. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the side Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 16. Boy, I don't know about you, but I can't get enough of those clairvoyant physicians. For more clairvoyance, see Episode 2, Spiritualistic Gold Hunters and Spiritual Oil Wells, and Episode 15, William Hope Hodgson, Part 2. Now, let's get to it. 150 years ago this week, a Syracusan picking up a newspaper might have read this. Syracuse Daily Journal Tuesday evening, June 16, 1868. Washington is filled with rumors of resignations, appointments, and cabinet changes. Deputy Internal Revenue Commissioner Harlan follows the example of Commissioner Rollins and resigns his position upon the same conditions. The President's friends are still divided as to who will be Mr. Rollins' successor, some being confident that Perry Fuller, of Kansas will be nominated to the Senate the present week, and others being equally confident that this cannot be true, as no name will be presented by the President which will not meet the favor of the Senate. The nomination of Mr. Everts to the Attorney Generalship still remains in abeyance, and the Democrats are unremitting in their assaults upon Secretary McCulloch. So, just three weeks after the first impeachment of a U.S. president, this is what we're left with. Resignations, appointments, and cabinet changes. Dry, boring shit. But please, bear with me one more minute while I read you another article from the same newspaper on the same day. Brownlow on Johnson A correspondent of the Cincinnati Gazette details a conversation recently held with Governor Brownlow. The old radical said that Fowler was elected senator on the recommendation of President Johnson, whose clerk he had been, and not because he had special qualifications for the position. If Fowler attempts to defend his vote on impeachment, one question which the people of East Tennessee will put to him will be likely to shut him up, i.e., how much did you get for that vote? Johnson has been all-powerful in West Tennessee, the rebel section, but has little influence in the eastern part of the state. 
The correspondent said to the governor that the popular impression was the contrary of this, and that to his influence, the steadfast loyalty of that region during the war was almost wholly due. This, said Governor Brownlow, is an entire mistake, and he proceeded to say, Johnson's loyalty was due to the people of East Tennessee, not theirs to him. He was always unpopular with them before the war. He was a Democrat. They were Whigs or Americans. He never could have obtained any office at their hands. When he was elected governor in 1855 over Gentry, he went out of East Tennessee with over 10,000 majority against him, but was saved by the middle and west divisions of the state, which, although they cherished no love for Johnson, were democratic. When the war came, Johnson, knowing that the aristocracy of West and Middle Tennessee hated him, saw there was no hope for him but to throw himself for support upon the loyal sentiment of East Tennessee. He did so, and was thus, no doubt, saved by the loyalty of East Tennessee from gravitating whither he naturally belonged, and becoming, perhaps, an employee of the Conscription Bureau for the Rebel Army. So, in addition to this exciting article on cabinet rearrangements, we've got a little bit of sour grapes from a Cincinnati newspaper about a Tennessee senator who supposedly gave his vote against impeachment because he knew Johnson. That's what made it into the newspapers about three weeks after the end of the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, which resulted in his acquittal. Clearly, during those three weeks, the newspaper publishers have been raking over the bones of impeachment, trying to suck one last bit of marrow out, and this is what's left. Something about examining this from 150 years in the future makes the phenomenon more obvious. First, the headlines explode with details and rumors about the primary players, and then, once all the dust has settled, they're left with nothing more than going back to those secondary and even tertiary players who didn't make headlines weeks previously, but who might provide a little more ink now that everyone's sick to death of hearing about those primary players. Why am I leading with this boring crap? Well, you might as well ask why there's been such a gap between the last episode and this one. It's intimidating, the sheer number of newspaper pages devoted to the subject of the Johnson impeachment over the last couple of months is overwhelming. I don't know how to tackle the problem. So maybe these faint echoes of impeachment three weeks after the conclusion are the best way for me to approach that problem, to walk up to that massive ball of string and find a little end sticking out and start to tease away at it. All right, now that we've heard those faint echoes, let's jump back to January of 1868. That's when the meat got dumped into that bubbling stew that led to Johnson's impeachment. To set the stage, I'll give you a brief recap of the political alignments and events of the previous couple of years. When you hear the words Republican and Democrat, that means more or less the opposite of what we think of as Republican and Democrat nowadays. That's an oversimplification, but if you want more of an explanation, go back to previous episodes. For the purposes of keeping track of the alignments in this episode, just remember that the Republican newspapers would have been 
anti-slavery, pro-emancipation, pro-black voting rights, anti-Johnson, pro-impeachment of Johnson. And the Democratic newspapers would have been more or less the opposite on all of those stances. As for the events, I highly recommend reading the Wikipedia article about the Johnson impeachment that I've linked to in the show notes because it's complicated. But here's a brief recap. In April 1865, Lincoln was assassinated, and lifelong Democrat, Vice President Johnson, became President Johnson. He was sympathetic to the South and disinclined to follow a strenuous Reconstruction policy, which disappointed Republicans, to say the least. Johnson had inherited Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, a radical Republican. So Johnson wanted nothing more than to see Stanton's ass on its way out the door. In 1867, Congress passed the Tenure of Office Act over Johnson's veto. The act basically said that the president had to go through Congress to make any cabinet changes. It was passed, more or less, to keep Stanton in office. Ah, but the act also said that the president didn't have to ask Congress about any cabinet changes while Congress was not in session, a loophole Johnson exploited when he suspended Stanton and appointed Ulysses S. Grant as Secretary of War while Congress was out of session in August 1867. In December, the Senate adopted a resolution of non-concurrence with Johnson's dismissal of Stanton, and Grant told Johnson that he would step aside. Johnson asked Grant not to do so until he could find a suitable replacement. But, in January, when Congress told Grant to step down, he did. And that brings me to this wonderful article from January 1868. It's a speech given by Onondaga Assemblyman A.G.S. Alice on the suspension of Secretary Stanton. I just love this speech for its lucidity and for the sick burns he gets in on the assemblymen who try to throw shade at him. Check it out. Syracuse Daily Journal, Monday evening, January 27, 1868. The Suspension of Secretary Stanton. Remarks of Honorable A.G.S. Alice in the Assembly, January 21, 1868. Mr. Alice said, Mr. Speaker, I agree with the gentleman from Warren, Mr. Laliau, in thanking the mover of this resolution, Mr. Lounsbury, for the courtesy extended to the minority of this House. It becomes those who have the power in their hands to extend all the courtesies which can possibly be shown, and it is with pride that I refer to the action of Congress in affording to the minority in that body seven days for the discussion of the Reconstruction measures. The resolution before us reads, Resolved that the conduct of Edwin M. Stanton in persistently claiming the position in the cabinet of President Johnson having been requested by his chief to resign and charged by message to the United States Senate with infidelity in office and with a breach of official courtesy and confidence, is opposed to public decency, contrary to the theory of our government and subversive of the peace and harmony of the country. Mr. Speaker, 
The resolution, by implication, involves not only the official relation of Secretary Stanton to the President, but the propriety and constitutionality of the law fixing the term of office, and the respective rights and powers of the coordinate branches of the government upon the question of Reconstruction. The resolution involves these great questions, for if Congress is right, Secretary Stanton is right. If the President is right, then Secretary Stanton is wrong. The fundamental principle of our government is the sovereignty of the people, that all just governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed. In a pure democracy, the people meet in assembly and enact and promulgate their laws by decree. In a republic, they choose representatives to meet in their stead and devise and make their laws for them. First, to form the fundamental law, the Constitution, establishing safeguards around the sovereign people and to create a government. Secondly, to meet and enact laws under the Constitution, regulating and controlling the coordinate branches of the government in the exercise and use of the powers vested in them by the Constitution. In the Constitutional Convention of 1787, a protracted discussion arose as to how these coordinate branches of the government should be formed and as to the extent and limitation of the powers they should exercise. The present Constitution was finally adopted and became the fundamental law of the land. I propose, in a few remarks, to discuss the constitutionality as well as the propriety and necessity of the laws which have forced this issue upon the people and forced Mr. Stanton to hold his position as Secretary of War. Section 1st of the first article of the Constitution provides that all legislative powers hereby granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Section 8 of the same article provides that Congress shall have power to levy and collect taxes, to borrow money, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. It will be seen that all the primary functions of government are vested in Congress as the direct representative of the people from whom all powers are derived, that Congress has not only authority to make laws, but authority to make all necessary laws for carrying into execution all powers vested in it or in any department of the government. By the action of the President in neglecting to execute the Reconstruction Acts, it became necessary for Congress to pass the Tenure of Office Law to keep within the executive departments men who would obey and execute the laws. What, sir, is the language of that law? Section 1. Every person holding any civil office to which he has been appointed by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, and every person who shall hereafter be appointed to any such office and shall become duly qualified to act therein, is and shall be entitled to hold such office until a successor shall have been in like measure appointed and duly qualified, except as herein otherwise provided. Section 2. 
and be it further enacted that when any officer appointed as aforesaid exempting judges of the United States courts shall during a recess of the Senate be shown by evidence satisfactory to the president to be guilty of misconduct in office or service or for any reason shall become incapable or legally disqualified to perform his duties in such cases and in no other the president may suspend such officer and designate some suitable person to perform temporarily the duties of such office until the next meeting of the senate and until the case shall be acted upon by the senate and such person so designated shall take the oath and give the bonds required by law to be taken and given by the person duly appointed to fill such office and in such case it shall be the duty of the president within twenty days after the first day of such next meeting of the Senate, to report to the Senate such suspension, with the evidence and reasons for his action in the case, and the name of the person so designated to perform the duties of such office. And if the Senate shall concur in such suspension, and advise and consent to the removal of such officer, they shall so certify to the President, who may thereupon remove such officer, and by and with the advice of the Senate, appoint another person to such office. But if the Senate shall refuse to concur in such suspension, such officer so suspended shall forthwith resume the function of his office, and the powers of the person so performing its duties shall cease, etc. It will be seen by this reference to the act that it became the imperative duty of Secretary Stanton, as an officer of the government and in obedience to the law, to re-enter upon the duties of Secretary of War. In Article Second, we find the powers and duties of the President. Section Third reads, He shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union, and recommend to their consideration such treasures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Shall do what? Shall give information, recommend, measure in regard to the State of the Union, which he may deem necessary or expedient for their consideration, not dictate measures for their enlistment, not initiation, and enforce measures which have not received their consideration or action, not to thwart and embarrass the application of a law because Congress did not see fit to comply with and act upon his recommendation. This is the issue between the President and Congress. He arbitrarily and without the shadow of constitutional or legal authority created, established, and maintained provisional governments and dictated the terms and conditions upon which the rebellious states should be reorganized and recognized in the sisterhood of the Union. Congress, not perceiving the wisdom of the President's plan and questioning the assumption of legislative power by the executive, enacted such laws, established such governmental authority over the South, and provided for such a reconstruction of the rebellious states as they deemed proper. The right of Congress so to do was conceded by the President and his Secretary in the submission of his reconstruction plan for approval. It matters not which method was the wiser and better. Congress has exercised its lawful, constitutional powers, and it was the duty of the President to execute the provisions of the law in letter and spirit. 
Instead, he obstructed in every conceivable way without openly defying Congress a fair trial of the law. A convenient attorney general pronounced it unconstitutional. Faithful officers like Pope and Sickles and Sheridan, who were as true and great in civil command as they were valiant and brave in battle, were removed. And the Secretary of War, zealous in the discharge of every duty, inspired by the same love of justice and of country that had borne him up during all the dark hours of the rebellion, and obedient to the behests of the supreme law of the land, sought to do all in his power to give effect to its provisions, and he was sacrificed. It is not who shall be Secretary of War, it is who shall rule, the people, represented in Congress, or the President, personated in Johnson, the many or the one. It is republicanism or tyranny. If this is a legal Congress under the Constitution, and not hanging on the outskirts of the government, then all its enactments, within its authority and in the manner prescribed by law, are valid. It is either legal or not legal, If not legal, then all its acts during the war and since are unconstitutional and void, and the president himself a usurper. The counting of the electoral vote, the war measures, the financial measures, and the reconstruction measures are all void ab initio. The proposition is too absurd for serious consideration. Having vindicated the right of Congress to enact such reconstruction measures as it seems best, and shown it to be the duty of the President and all under him to execute in good faith the laws which they may make, I now come to the constitutionality of the law itself, the propriety and necessity of its measures and the official conduct of Secretary Stanton. The great opposition which the law encounters arises from the fact of its securing the right of suffrage to the colored citizens of the South. This is the main issue between Congress and the executive. Is such a provision constitutional, just, and necessary? It will be, perhaps, sufficient to consider this objection alone, for accepting that, in good faith, the South can and will be restored under the law to all their relations with the government. It is claimed that the law is unconstitutional because it regulates the right of suffrage, which power is reserved to the states. It is a familiar rule of law that any power or grant given carries with it, by implication, if not expressed, such powers and privileges as are necessary for its exercise and enjoyment. If I sell an acre of land in the center of my farm, it carries with it the right of way. If I sell a tree, the right to chop and draw it off. Sections 3 and 4 of Article 4 of the Constitution give Congress the power to admit new states and to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States, and to guarantee to each state a republican form of government, which carry with them all minor powers. 
The moment the governments of the southern states repudiated allegiance to the national government and gave in adherence to another central, usurping organization, they became divested, by force of their acts themselves, of all the legality which had before vested in them. Legal, civil governments having ceased in the rebel states, and no legal governments having been established therein prior to the Reconstruction Act, Congress had the constitutional right to create in such states civil governments on the basis of a qualified, impartial, or universal suffrage, on any basis guaranteeing to them a republican form of government, that in their judgment the great exigencies of the hour demanded, and to give to such embryo states, while forming, all necessary protection. As to the justness and necessity of the measure, the condition of the Negro at the South before the war is familiar to us all. We know the subjection in which he has been held for a long series of years, the great suffering to which he had submitted, the wrongs that had been heaped upon him, and the absolute bondage in which he had served for two centuries. We know that the purpose of the rebellion was to establish, during all time, the institution of slavery. When the war broke out, it was announced to the world by the South that the Negro was in sympathy with the Southern Confederacy. Yet, in every lowly cabin, around every Southern prison, upon every battlefield, hovering over our wounded soldiers and caring for and feeding them in their suffering, in every state, protecting and guiding them through the dark forests of the South, was found the poor and humble slave. Long did we hesitate whether we should put into his hands the musket to defend the stars and stripes, and fight for the Union and its preservation. Finally, when called upon by the necessities of defeat and by the almost unanimous vote of the North, he sprang to arms with commendable alacrity and fought valiantly for our country and its cause. Braving all the prejudices of the North and the vindictiveness of the South, he went into the battlefield regardless of the outlawing proclamations of the Confederacy and met nobly his death or gained the victory. And, sir, when the war closed, we who are the recipients of the great benefits which he helped to achieve, we who are now enjoying the high privileges of this government, due in part to the soldierly qualities of the slave, are called upon to leave him to the tender mercies of his former masters, his enemies and ours. The question came before the Congress of the United States. The loyal people of the South both white and black, were hunted down and shot in cold blood. It is the prayer of the loyal whites of the South that the colored citizens have the right of suffrage. It is for their mutual protection. The ballot is a mighty, all-sufficient power in this government, and clothed with this prerogative they can peacefully secure to themselves and their posterity the rights and privileges of American citizens, the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today they are unprotected save where the armies of the United States guard them. The cry that came up from those suffering loyal ones Congress heard and heeded. What were we asked to do by our Democratic friends?
We were asked to leave them without a voice for their own protection and without the protection of the general government. We were asked to cowardly abandon them to the destruction which inevitably awaited them at the hands of the battled, bloodthirsty rebels. Congress felt this to be unjust, cowardly, despicable, felt that they were called upon to stand up for the good of all the citizens of the state, poor or rich, black or white. With this view of the great and important issue, they enacted the Reconstruction Measure. President Johnson took a front. He became an obstructionist. He endeavored by every means in his power to thwart the enforcement of this law, and the necessity arose for Congress, in the exercise of its authority, which I have shown to be vested in it by the Constitution, to make such laws as were necessary to carry into execution this great measure of the day. They then enacted the Tenure of Office Law, we are told that the Negroes are unqualified to exercise the right of suffrage. It would be my choice, Mr. Speaker, that throughout the length and breadth of this country, when free schools are general and when education is open to all, that an educational test should be established. I believe it just and proper and right to say that he who shall exercise this high privilege of a citizen shall be able to read the laws of the land. Mr. P. Burns I rise to a point of order that the gentleman is not speaking to the question before the House. The Speaker The point of order seems to be well taken. The gentleman from Onondaga will confine himself to the discussion of the resolution under consideration in reference to Edwin M. Stanton, the late Secretary of War. Mr. Alice. Mr. Stanton became the representative of a measure of one party to the great issues between Congress and the President. The President, in endeavoring to thwart the measures of Congress, discovered in Mr. Stanton a staunch and firm purpose to execute the laws in accordance with their letter and spirit, and it was not until then that he found reasons for the suspension of the Secretary of War. The issue which is necessarily involved in this resolution must be referred primarily to the question of which party is in the right. It is a question of right as between the President and Congress, and I trust, Mr. Speaker, that I am not far from the point in issue when I am discussing the relative merits of their action. The generosity of our government towards the rebels of the South must have received the admiration of the world. The terms of Reconstruction are not harsh. Mr. J. L. Flagg I renew the point of order made by the gentleman from New York that the gentleman is not confining himself to the question under discussion. The Speaker. The point of order is well taken. The gentleman from Onondaga will please proceed in order. Mr. Alice. If it is necessary, Mr. Speaker, that I should constantly reiterate the name of Edwin M. Stanton, that the learned members of the other side may perceive that I am confining myself to the discussion of that resolution, I will endeavor to bring my argument within their comprehension by so doing. Secretary Stanton was appointed to the office of Secretary of War January 13, 1862. The armies of the country at that time had met with great trouble in the matters of the disposal of troops 
and the transportation of supplies which were necessary for carrying on the campaign. He brought such great energy and ability to the high position to which he had been assigned that within two weeks after he entered upon the discharge of his duties, the famous war order of the president, at his instigation, was promulgated, ordering all the armies of the country to move upon the enemy. By his energy, zeal, and unceasing labor in supplying troops, sustenance, and the material of war, he enabled our forces to move forward without delay. Mr. Stanton exhibited from the commencement of his service, from the Battle of Fair Oaks down to the closing scenes of the war, an untiring energy, a constant vigilance, and a quick perception of the necessities of the hour which commended him to the confidence and earnest approbation of the country. Mr. Jacobs, will the gentleman from Onondaga allow me to ask him a question? Mr. Alice, certainly. Mr. Jacobs, the gentleman speaks of the courage and the patriotism of Edwin M. Stanton. I would like to ask the gentleman if he endorses the sentiment of Edwin M. Stanton in saying, when 30,000 Union prisoners were starving in southern dungeons, that he would not exchange well men for skeletons. Mr. Alice, I doubt the assertion. Mr. Speaker, while I have the greatest sympathy for the suffering of our poor soldiers in the detestable pens of southern prisons because of the outrages perpetrated upon them by the democratic friends of the gentlemen at the South, I can but say that the wisdom of a measure must depend upon the sacrifice which is necessary to carry it out. If the exchange of prisoners was to ensure defeat, then such a decision was right, and I, for one, am willing to humbly submit to the superior judgment of those men who carried the country safely through the dark struggle, whether such action was rendered necessary by the support and encouragement received by the enemies of the country from northern men and northern sympathizers. Had I the wealth of an aster, it would be the highest privilege of my life to lay it down, if I could secure that proud satisfaction of great deeds worthily done, which must ever dwell with the great defenders of the country, those not only who have fought gloriously upon the field of battle, but those who have silently and faithfully guarded the great public interests in the halls of state. It is a privilege which we cannot now enjoy. I trust that the resolution before the House reflecting discredit upon a person of such distinguished ability, one who has so eminently served the country, and who has given such entire satisfaction to the loyal people of the North, will not pass this honorable body. Mr. Jacobs, if the gentleman will permit me, I should like to ask him another question. I understand the gentleman from Onondaga to generally endorse the patriotic conduct of the late Secretary of War. I wish to ask him if he endorses the action of Edwin M. Stanton when, after the Second Battle of Bull Run, he was compelled to beg George B. McClellan to save his country on the field of Antietam. Mr. Alice. It is with satisfaction that I hear the gentleman refer to the action of the Honorable Secretary as regards his distinguished friend, George B. McClellan.
I remember well that in reply to the repeated importunities of the general for reinforcements that he received from the Secretary of War a letter giving him the warmest assurances of his cordial and earnest support and his entire confidence. It was his duty, sir, to a general in the field. As to recalling him to command, I may say that I approve of the action of any official, however high his position in the government, who, if he has committed an error, has the manliness to acknowledge it. It was his imperative duty to call upon those who had the power and were qualified to serve the country, and to sacrifice himself, if need be, for the good of the country. Mr. Murphy. Will the gentleman permit me to ask a question? Mr. Jacobs. Will the gentleman allow me? Mr. Alice. One at a time, one at a time, gentlemen. I will endeavor to answer all your inquiries satisfactorily. Mr. Jacobs. I am happy that the gentleman from Onondaga endorses the conduct of the late Secretary of War in assisting in sending General McClellan to the command of the army on the field of Antietam, and now that he endorses the conduct of Mr. Stanton in that particular, I wish to ask him if he endorses the conduct of that gentleman in conniving at the ruin of General McClellan after the Battle of Antietam. Mr. Alice. It is always with pleasure that I answer the inquiries of the distinguished gentleman when it is in my power to do so. The charge which he makes against the Honorable Secretary of War in conniving at the ruin of the distinguished gentleman then in command of the Army of the Potomac is one which I deem unfounded. I read but yesterday the flattering words used by the Secretary in his address to General McClellan, and I believe that to have been the general sentiment until he alienated the confidence of the people by his dilatory measures, his constant prolonging of the struggle, and his fear to encounter the enemy when having far inferior numbers. I believe, sir, the judgment of the Secretary of War and the wisdom of the late President of the United States were fully exemplified in the course that was taken by them, when these facts became palpable to the country. And, sir, the people passed upon this question in reference to General McClellan and sustained by an overwhelming vote the action of President Lincoln and Secretary Stanton. In closing, I know it would be impossible, with the feeling of the majority of this House, to get any resolution passed complementary to the Secretary of War, and feeling that it is necessary for us in the minority to resort to such measures as may give to our constituents a full and fair expression of our sentiments, I have briefly given my reasons, Mr. Speaker, for sustaining Secretary Stanton and for voting against the resolution. Hugh here. Now we're going to fast forward two weeks to February 10th. I chose that day because it's particularly illuminating to compare the articles in the Republican and Democratic newspapers. First, let's hear from the Republican side. Syracuse Daily Standard, Monday morning, February 10th, 1868. Washington Items. The Reconstruction Subcommittee met at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon and formally organized for business. At the hour of meeting, General Grant has not appeared. The committee, therefore, ordered the sergeant-at-arms to bring J.B. Stilson of the New York World before them. 
Mr. Stilson was examined concerning his interviews with the President, accounts of which have appeared in the world from time to time under the signature J.B.S. It seems to be generally understood that the President will not publish, at present, his letter in reply to General Grant. If it does see light, it will probably be in the shape originally settled upon by Mr. Johnson and his friends. Those who have seen the letter say it is extremely bitter in its tone and rather belligerent towards both General Grant and Congress. In view of the action of the Reconstruction Committee, which was unexpected by Mr. Johnson, his friends have advised him to withhold his letter from the public. Another difficulty, it is said, is that some members of the cabinet, upon whom the president had counted to confirm his statements about General Grant, now refuse to do it, alleging that Mr. Johnson has made them too strong. It is believed, however, that the real cause of the refusal of the president to publish his letter is the investigation begun by the Reconstruction Committee. The Reconstruction Committee held a long and animated discussion on Saturday on the recent correspondence between President Johnson and General Grant, which was referred to them by the House. It is said that several of the Republican members of the committee contended that the conduct of the President in instructing General Grant not to obey orders from Mr. Stanton, purporting to come from the executive, unless he knew that such was the fact, was clearly a violation of the Tenure of Office Act, and Mr. Stevens was in favor of reporting a resolution of impeachment at once. It was finally agreed, however, to appoint a committee, consisting of Messrs. Boutwell and Bingham, Republicans, and Brooks, Democrat, to examine witnesses in regard to the matter and report the result of their investigation to the full committee at an early day. Mr. Brooks, being a member of the Ways and Means Committee, which requires his constant attention, was at his own request excused from service on the subcommittee, and Mr. Beck, of Kentucky, the other Democratic member of the committee, was substituted in his place. It is further stated that the committee agreed to report a bill to remove the political disability imposed by the Reconstruction Acts from ex-Governor Holden, Governor Orr, and General Longstreet. Hugh here. So the Republicans are more or less sticking to simple facts. What did Johnson say to Grant about refusing to give up the Secretary of War office to Stanton? Did it violate the Tenure of Office Act, and is that enough for impeachment? Now, over to the Democratic side, where it's a bit murkier. Here's the first of two articles. Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, Monday morning, February 10th, 1868. The impeachment scheme revived. The Tribune assures the public that the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives have revived the scheme of impeaching the President. They will base their case on the Grant correspondence. The conduct of certain cabinet officers is also to be investigated and the committee is empowered to include such officers. To this, the Tribune adds, It may be remembered that a bill is pending in the Senate regulating the proceedings in case of impeachment, 
and providing that on presentment of articles of impeachment against any officer, said officer shall refuse to act in an official capacity, and that in case the president is the offender, the officer next in authority shall have power to call on the land and naval forces to enforce the laws. In mercy to the president, let the scheme be followed up, If any one of his subordinates is to be justified in insulting the chief executive, let us give up the farce of having an executive head of the government at all. In Mexico and the South American republics, every faction makes and unmakes its own president at pleasure. To be sure, the example of those countries is not commended by success, but possibly the American people desire to try it, It is about time that this issue should be tested at all events. Hugh here. I thought that was an interesting rhetorical device, essentially saying, well, if we're going to have a subordinate presuming to question the president, we might as well be one of those lousy South American countries. Now, listen to this second article. What is the remedy? The New York Herald, in view of the congressional despotism and Negro suffrage, asks... What is the remedy? And it says, this is the real word of the hour. Millions of people in this country, some of them suffering from crushed business, some of them out of work and needing means for daily support, some of them alarmed for the security of their bonds and other property, capitalists, businessmen, laborers, are inquiring, what is the remedy? What is it? The people are the source of power. When they see great evils and feel them, when they become satisfied that the party in power is destroying their government and their prosperity, they should rise and protest, hold meetings, pass resolves, unite with each other without regard to past political associations, and vote against those who are making the mischief. Votes in this country will do more than cannon. Votes will reform abuses. Hugh here. Now that's interesting. Compare and contrast that with Assemblyman Alice's speech. Look at the way each of them approaches race and the powers of President and Congress. Alice is trying to muster sympathy for Southern blacks and Southern whites in the face of a limp-wristed Reconstruction, while the Courier is trying to muster paranoia among whites who are afraid of black suffrage. Alice is crying presidential tyranny, while the courier is crying congressional despotism. Now we're going to go two days forward and tackle a monster article that occupies most of page two of the Syracuse Daily Journal. I'll warn you, it's boring, but that's the point. Listen to the he said, he said of it all. Syracuse Daily Journal, Wednesday evening, February 12th. 1868. The War Department. The President's last letter to General Grant and accompanying epistles from cabinet officers. General Grant's vindication. Washington, February 11th. President Johnson's last letter to General Grant, together with letters from Secretaries Seward, Wells, McCulloch, and Browning, and Postmaster General Randall, sustaining Mr. Johnson's statements regarding General Grant, were read in the House this afternoon. 
The president reiterates his former statements and argues the point against General Grant. The letters from the cabinet officers are for the most part restatements of what has already been published concerning what took place in the cabinet meeting on the Tuesday after Mr. Stanton was reinstated. They all agree substantially upon the statements made by the president which have appeared in print. President Johnson's letter to General Grant is dated the 10th instant. He says, You speak of my letter of the 31st Ultimo as a reiteration of the many and gross misrepresentations contained in certain newspaper articles, and reassert the correctness of the statements contained in your communication of the 28th Ultimo, adding, and here I give your own words, quote, Anything in yours in reply to it, to the contrary notwithstanding. End quote. When a controversy upon matters of fact reaches the point to which this has been brought, further assertion or denial between the immediate parties should cease, especially when, upon either side, it loses the character of the respectful discussion which is required by the relations in which the parties stand to each other and degenerates in tone and temper. In such a case, if there is nothing to rely upon but the opposing statements, conclusions must be drawn from these statements alone and from whatever intrinsic probabilities they afford in favor of or against either of the parties. I should not shrink from this controversy, but fortunately it is not left to this test alone. There were five cabinet officers present at the conversation, the details of which in my letter of the 28th Ultimo you allow yourself to say contains many and gross misrepresentations, these gentlemen heard that conversation and have read my statements. They speak for themselves, and I leave the proof without a word of comment. The President thus notices some of the statements contained in General Grant's letter. You say that a performance of the promises alleged to have been made by you to the President would have involved a resistance to law and an inconsistency with the whole history of my connection with the suspension of Mr. Stanton. You then state that you had fears the President would, on the removal of Mr. Stanton, appoint someone in his place who would embarrass the Army in carrying out the Reconstruction Acts, and add, quote, It was to prevent such an appointment that I accepted the office of Secretary of War ad interim, and not for the purpose of enabling you to get rid of Mr. Stanton by withholding it from him in opposition to the law, or not doing so myself, surrendering to one who, as the statement and assumptions in your communications plainly indicate, was sought first of all." You here admit that from the very beginning of what you term the whole history of your connection with Mr. Stanton's suspension, you intended to circumvent the President. It was to carry out that intent that you accepted the appointment. This was in your mind at the time of your acceptance. It was not, then, in obedience to the order of your superior, as has heretofore been supposed, that you assumed the duties of the office. You knew it was the President's purpose to prevent Mr. Stanton from reassuming the office of Secretary of War, and you intended to defeat that purpose. You accepted the office not in the interest of the President, but of Mr. Stanton. 
If this purpose so entertained by you had been confined to yourself, if, when accepting the office, you had done so with a mental reservation to frustrate the president, it would have been a tacit deception. In the ethics of some persons, such a course is allowable, but you cannot stand even upon that questionable ground. The history of your connection with this transaction, as written by yourself, places you in a different predicament and shows that you not only concealed your design from the president, but induced him to suppose that you would carry out his purpose to keep Mr. Stanton out of office by retaining it yourself. After an attempted restoration by the Senate, so as to require Mr. Stanton to establish his right by judicial decision. I now give that part of the history as written by yourself in your letter of the 28th Ultimo. Quote, Some time after I assumed the duties of Secretary of War ad interim, the President asked me my views as to the course Mr. Stanton would have to pursue in case the Senate should not concur in his suspension to obtain possession of his office. My reply was, in substance, that Mr. Stanton would have to appeal to the courts to reinstate him, illustrating my position by citing the ground I had taken in the case of the Baltimore Police Commissioners." End quote. Now, at that time, as you admit in your letter of the third instant, you held the office for the very object of defeating an appeal to the courts. In that letter, you say that in accepting the office, one motive was to prevent the president from appointing some other person who would retain possession and thus make judicial proceedings necessary. You knew the president was unwilling to trust the office with anyone who would not, by holding it, compel Mr. Stanton to resort to the courts. You perfectly understood that in this interview. Some time after you accepted the office, the president, not content with your silence, desired an expression of your views, and you answered him that Mr. Stanton, quote, would have to appeal to the courts, end quote. If the president had reposed confidence before he knew your views, and that confidence had been violated, it might have been said he made a mistake. But a violation of confidence reposed after that conversation was no mistake of his nor of yours. It is the fact only that needs to be stated, that at the date of this conversation you did not intend to hold the office with the purpose of forcing Mr. Stanton into court, but did hold it then and had accepted it to prevent that course from being carried out. In other words, you said to the President, that is the proper course, and you said to yourself, I have accepted this office and now hold it to defeat that course. The excuse you make in a subsequent paragraph of that letter of the 28th Ultimo, that afterwards you changed your views as to what would be a proper course, has nothing to do with the point now under consideration. The point is that before you changed your views, you had secretly determined to do the very thing which at last you did, surrender the office to Mr. Stanton. You may have changed your views as to the law, but you certainly did not change your views as to the course you had marked out for yourself from the beginning. 
I will only notice one more statement in your letter of the third instant, that the performance of the promises which it is alleged were made by you would have involved you in the resistance of law. I know of no statute that would have been violated had you, carrying out your promise in good faith, tendered your resignation when you concluded not to be made a party to any legal proceeding. You add, quote, I am in a measure confirmed in this conclusion by your recent orders directing me to disobey orders from the Secretary of War, my superior and your subordinate, without having countermanded his authority to issue the orders I am to disobey, end quote. On the 24th Ultimo, you addressed a note to the President requesting in writing an order given to you verbally five days before to disregard orders from Mr. Stanton as Secretary of War until you know from the President himself that they were his orders. On the 29th, in compliance with your request, I did give you instructions in writing not to obey any order from the War Department, assumed to be issued by direction of the President, unless such order is known by the General commanding the armies of the United States to have been authorized by the Executive. There are some orders which the Secretary of War may issue without the authority of the President. There are others which he issues simply as the agent of the President, and which purport to be by the direction of the President. For such orders the President is responsible, and he should, therefore, know and understand what they are before giving such direction. Mr. Stanton states in his letter of the fourth instant, which accompanies the published correspondence, that he has had no correspondence with the President since the 12th of August last, and he further says that since he resumed the duties of the office, he has continued to discharge them without any personal or written communication with the President, and he adds, quote, No orders have been issued from this department in the name of the President without my knowledge, and I have received no orders from him, end quote. It thus seems that Mr. Stanton now discharges the duties of the War Department without any reference to the President and without using his name. My order to you had only reference to orders assumed to be issued by the President. It would appear from Mr. Stanton's letter that you have received no such orders from him. In your note to the President of the 13th Ultimo, in which you acknowledge the receipt of the written order of the 29th, you say that you have been informed by Mr. Stanton that he has not received any orders limiting his authority to issue orders to the Army according to the practice of the Department, and state that, quote, where this authority to the War Department is not countermanded, it will be satisfactory evidence to me that any orders issued from the War Department by direction of the President are authorized by the Executive. End quote. The President issues an order to you to obey no order from the War Department purporting to be made by the direction of the President until you have referred it to him for his approval. You reply that you have received the President's order and will not obey it, but will obey any order purporting to be given by his direction if it comes from the War Department. You will obey no direct order of the President, but will obey his indirect order. 
If, as you say, there has been a practice in the War Department to issue orders in the name of the President without his direction, does not the precise order you have requested and have received change the practice as to the General of the Army? Could not the President countermand any such order issued to you from the War Department? If you should receive an order from that department issued in the name of the President to do a special act, and an order directly from the President himself not to do the act, is there a doubt which you are to obey? You answer the question where you say to the President, in your letter of the third instant, quote, The Secretary of War is my superior and your subordinate, end quote. And yet you refuse obedience to the superior out of deference to the subordinate. Without further comment upon the insubordinate attitude which you have assumed, I am at a loss to know how you can relieve yourself from the orders of the President, who is made by the Constitution the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, and is therefore the official superior as well of the General of the Army as of the Secretary of War. Respectfully, signed, Andrew Johnson. Note to Cabinet Officers. The following is a copy of a letter addressed to each of the members of the Cabinet present at the conversation between the President and General Grant on the 14th of January, 1868. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., February 5th, 1868. Sir, the chronicle of this morning contains a correspondence between the President and General Grant, reported from the War Department in answer to a resolution of the House of Representatives. I beg to call your attention to that correspondence, and especially to that part of it which refers to the conversation between the President and General Grant at the Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, the 14th of January, and to request you to state what was said in that conversation. Very respectfully yours, signed, Andrew Johnson. Their responses. To which Secretary Wells replies as follows. My recollection of the conversation of the Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, the 14th of January, corresponds with your statement of it in the letter of the 31st Ultimo in the published correspondence. The three points specified in that letter, giving your recollection of the conversation, are correctly stated. Secretary McCulloch replies as follows. I cannot undertake to state the precise language used, but I have no hesitancy in saying that your account of that conversation, as given in your letter to General Grant under date of the 31st Ultimo, substantially in all important particulars accords with my recollection of it. Postmaster General Randall, in reply, says... The following extract from your letter of the 31st of January to General Grant is according to my recollection of the conversation that took place between the President and General Grant at the Cabinet meeting on the 14th of January last. In the presence of the Cabinet, the President asked General Grant whether, in the conversation which took place after his appointment as Secretary of War ad interim, he did not agree either to remain at the head of the War Department and abide any judicial proceedings that might follow the non-concurrence by the Senate in Mr. Stanton's suspension, or 
should he wish, not become involved in such a controversy, to put the president in the same position with respect to the office as he occupied previous to General Grant's appointment by returning it to the president in time to anticipate such action by the Senate. This General Grant admitted. The president then asked General Grant if, at the conference on the preceding Saturday, he had not, to avoid misunderstanding, requested General Grant to state what he intended to do. And further, if in reply to that inquiry he, General Grant, had not referred to their former conversations, saying that from them the president understood his position, and that his, General Grant's, action would be consistent with the understanding which had been reached. To these questions, General Grant replied in the affirmative. The president asked General Grant if, at the conclusion of their interview on Saturday, it was not understood that they were to have another conference on Monday before final action by the Senate in the case of Mr. Stanton. General Grant replied that such was the understanding, but that he did not suppose the Senate would act so soon, that on Monday he had been engaged in a conference with General Sherman and was occupied with many little matters, and asked if General Sherman had not called on that day. Secretary Browning replies at the Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, the 14th of January, 1868, General Grant appeared and took his accustomed seat at the board. When he had been reached in the order of business, the president asked him, as usual, if he had anything to present. In reply, the general, after referring to a note which he had that morning addressed to the president, enclosing a copy of the resolution of the Senate, refusing to concur in the reasons for the suspension of Mr. Stanton, proceeded to say that he regarded his duties as Secretary of War ad interim terminated by that resolution and that he could not lawfully exercise such duties for a moment after the adoption of the resolution by the Senate, that the resolution reached him last night, and that this morning he had gone to the War Department, entered the Secretary's room, bolted one door on the inside, locked the other on the outside, delivered the key to the Adjutant General, and proceeded to the headquarters of the Army, and addressed the note above mentioned to the President, informing him that he, General Grant, was no longer Secretary of War ad interim. The President expressed great surprise at the course which General Grant had thought proper to pursue, and addressing himself to the General, proceeded to say in substance that he had anticipated such action of the Senate, and being very desirous to have the constitutionality of the Tenure of Office Bill tested, and his right to suspend or remove a member of the Cabinet decided by the Judicial Tribunal of the country. He had some time ago, and shortly after General Grant's appointment as Secretary of War ad interim, asked the General what his action would be in the event that the Senate should refuse to concur in the suspension of Mr. Stanton, and that the General had then agreed either to remain at the head of the War Department till a decision could be obtained from the court, or resign the office into the hands of the President before the case was acted upon by the Senate so as to place the President in the same situation he occupied at the time of his, Grant's, appointment. 
The president further said that the conversation was renewed on the preceding Saturday, at which time he asked the general what he intended to do if the Senate should undertake to reinstate Mr. Stanton. In reply to which, the general referred to their former conversation upon the same subject and said, You understand my position, and my conduct will be conformable to that understanding. That he, the general, then expressed a repugnance to being made a party to a judicial proceeding, saying that he would expose himself to fine and imprisonment by doing so, as continuing to discharge the duties of Secretary of War ad interim after the Senate should have refused to concur in the suspension of Mr. Stanton would be a violation of the Tenure of Office Bill. That in reply to this, he, the President, informed General Grant he had not suspended Mr. Stanton under the Tenure of Office Bill, but by virtue of the powers conferred on him by the Constitution, and that as to the fine and imprisonment, he, the President, would pay whatever fine was imposed, and submit to whatever imprisonment might be adjudged against him, the General. That they continued the conversation for some time, discussing the law at length, and that they finally separated without having reached a definite conclusion, and with the understanding that the general would see the president again on Monday. In reply, General Grant admitted that the conversation had occurred, and said that at the first conversation he had given it as his opinion to the president that in the event of a non-concurrence by the Senate in the action of the president in respect to the Secretary of War, the question would have to be decided by the court, that Mr. Stanton would have to appeal to the court to reinstate him in office, that the ins would remain in till they could be displaced, and the outs put in by legal proceedings, and that he then thought so and had agreed that if he should change his mind he would notify the president in time to enable him to make another appointment. But at the time of the first conversation he had not looked very closely into the law, that it had recently been discussed by the newspapers, that this had induced him to examine it more carefully, and that he had come to the conclusion that if the Senate should refuse to concur in the suspension, Mr. Stanton would thereby be reinstated, and that he, Grant, could not continue thereafter to act as Secretary of War ad interim without subjecting himself to fine and imprisonment, and that he came over on Saturday to inform the President of the change in his views, and did so inform him, that the President replied that he had not suspended Mr. Stanton under the Tenure of Office Bill, but under the Constitution, and had appointed him, Grant, by virtue of the authority derived from the Constitution, etc., that they continued to discuss the matter some time, and finally he left without any conclusion having been reached, excepting to see the President again on Monday. He then proceeded to explain why he had not called on the President on Monday by saying that he had a long interview with General Sherman, that various little matters had occupied his time till it was late, and that he did not think the Senate would act so soon, and asked, Did not General Sherman call on you on Monday? I do not know what passed between the President and General Grant on Saturday, except as I learned it from the conversation between them at the Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, and the foregoing is substantially what then occurred.
General Grant's Vindication The President subsequently transmitted a communication from General Grant vindicating himself from insubordination as follows. Headquarters, Army of the U.S., Washington, February 11, 1868 To His Excellency Andrew Johnson, President of the United States I have the honor to acknowledge the receipt of your communication of the 10th instant, accompanied by the statements of five cabinet ministers of their recollection of what occurred in cabinet meeting on the 14th of January. Without admitting anything contained in these statements where they differ from anything heretofore stated by me, I propose to notice only that portion of your communication wherein I am charged with insubordination. I think it will be plain to the reader of my letter of the 30th of January that I did not propose to disobey any legal order of the President directly given, but only gave an interpretation of what would be regarded as satisfactory evidence of the President's sanction to orders communicated by the Secretary of War. I will say here that your letter of the sixth instant contains the first intimation I have had that you did not accept that interpretation. Now for my reasons for giving that interpretation. It was clear to me before my letter of January 30th was written that I, the person having more public business to transact with the Secretary of War than any other of the President's subordinates, was the only one who had been instructed to disregard the authority of Mr. Stanton, where his authority was derived as agent of the President. On the 27th of January, I received a letter from the Secretary of War, copy herewith, directing me to furnish an escort to the public treasurer from the Rio Grande to New Orleans, etc., at the request of the Secretary of the Treasury. To him I also sent two other enclosures showing the recognition of Mr. Stanton as Secretary of War by both the Secretary of the Treasury and the Postmaster General in all of which cases the Secretary of War had to call upon me to make the orders requested or give the information desired, and where his authority to do so is derived in my view as agent of the President. With an order so clearly ambiguous as that of the President's here referred to, it was my duty to inform the President of my interpretation of it, and to abide by that interpretation until I received other orders. Disclaiming any intention, now or heretofore, of disobeying any legal order of the President distinctly communicated, I remain, very respectfully, your obedient servant. Signed, U.S. Grant, General. Hugh here. Hey, does anybody know what you call that particularly delicious 19th century language? Like... Very respectfully yours, I remain your obedient servant, blah, 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 which basically translates to, you, my good sir, may go eat a Dyson sphere full of dicks. There's got to be a word for that. If anybody knows what it is, let me know. Anyway, did you follow all that? If you did, you're doing better than I am, because there are intricacies of the accusations that Grant and Johnson flung back and forth that I still can't parse. But the bewildering nature of it is part of what I wanted to share with you. 
That was three and a half columns of obscure back and forth that boils down to meaningless gossip, at least as far as I can see. I mean, after all, what does it matter what Johnson said to Grant and what Grant said in return? Sure, it matters in terms of the honor of the people involved, but from a legal perspective, from the perspective of anyone reading that article who wants to know how the impeachment is going to go, none of that is relevant in the slightest. It's just gossip. And that's the point. The media doesn't care about relevance. The media cares most about eyeballs on the page in service of advertising revenue, and they will do anything to accomplish that. And hey, look, I know how cynical that sounds, and I know I tend to speak in absolute terms. Just understand that I know that there are lots of journalists out there with impeccable integrity and a lot of journalistic institutions who are doing great, vital, important work. But my point stands. Relevance does not tend to drive the media. Eyeballs on ads drive the media, and gossip has always been the best way to draw that gaze. Anyway, if you made it this far, and holy shit, you are amazing if you did, you can relax, because now we're getting to the good stuff. Get a load of these articles from three days later, right after Johnson has tried to create a completely new military division and put Sherman at the head of it specifically to negate the power of the Secretary of War office. Syracuse Daily Journal, Saturday evening, February 15, 1868. By telegraph, Washington, Sherman objects to being made brevet general. The president's action considered illegal. Proposed legislation, probable removal of Stanton, Grant's arrest threatened. General Sherman repudiates. The Tribune's special says, Lieutenant General Sherman, according to private dispatches received in this city, does not appreciate the kind intentions of Mr. Johnson in assigning him to the new military division with headquarters at Washington. The President's Action Illegal the lieutenant general has telegraphed to one or two of his friends in Washington and other places that he does not wish to go there and that he does not believe the president can legally create a new military division. Sherman will resign rather than accept. He is so determined on this point that he prefers the alternative of resigning and will so act if ordered to accept that post. His instructions to Senator Sherman. Lieutenant General Sherman has telegraphed to his brother to have the military committee refuse action upon the appointment, and the senator will present a bill denying the authority of the president to make the proposed change. A Resolution of Inquiry it was agreed informally among senators on Friday to pass a resolution on Monday calling on the president for a statement of his purposes in creating the Department of the Atlantic, redistricting the military departments. It was further resolved to bring in a bill to redistrict the military departments so as to virtually abolish the operations of the president's order. 
Effect of Johnson's Last Military Movement The order returning Major General Thomas to his post in the War Department as Adjutant General, which was issued Thursday evening, is meant by the President as a severe blow at Secretary Stanton, as these gentlemen are not on the best of terms. How he will be flanked It is said the difficulty will be overcome by altering the law directing that officers over 46 years of age may be retired, so as to read, shall be retired, and thus General Thomas will be set aside. Another opinion, hatching. The Attorney General will, it is said, soon give an opinion that the orders on reconstruction required to be issued through the General of the Armies are only military ones, and not those of a civil nature. This is called for by the Grant-Hancock difficulty. The removal of Stanton urged... J.B.S. telegraphs the world that the friends of the president urge him to remove Stanton and appoint one of the members of the cabinet ad interim, thus involving a peaceful judicial appeal for a decision of the matter. Grant threatened with arrest. The position General Grant has placed himself in is also claimed as cause for his arrest and trial by court-martial. Washington specials revive the rumors of the intention on the part of the president to call General Grant to an account for his alleged insubordination before a court-martial. It is stated further that Johnson has snubbed Stanton by reinstating Adjutant General Thomas, who was removed for inefficiency during the war, and that Stanton is to be superseded by the appointment of a Secretary of War ad interim. The President's nomination of Lieutenant General Sherman to be Brevet General of the Armies of the United States is promulgated. The President directs General Grant to assign General Sherman to the command of a new department, headquarters in Washington, to be called the Military Division of the Atlantic, which includes the departments of Washington, the East, and the Lakes. General Sheridan is directed by General Grant to the temporary command of the Department of Missouri, thus made vacant. There is great doubt of the President's power to make this promotion. General Sherman is averse to it and threatens to resign if it is persisted upon. There is doubtless a political motive at the bottom of the President's action, and in this view he is to be called upon by the Senate to state his reasons for making the nomination. The resources of Johnson to keep Congress and the country in a perpetual commotion seem to be inexhaustible. Hugh here. Boy, that last sentence didn't sound familiar at all, did it? So, we're coming up on the last article of this episode, and it's a juicy one. Turns out General Sherman ain't taken too kindly to being put in the middle of this bullshit. Not too kindly at all. Syracuse Daily Standard, Syracuse, New York, Monday morning, February 17, 1868. General Sherman. If we are to trust the dispatches from Washington, General Sherman, so far from appreciating as a kindness the attempted erection of the new military division, of which he was to be made the commander, 
utterly repudiates the arrangement. He has telegraphed his friends at the Capitol that he does not wish to go there and does not believe the president can legally create a new division. It is further stated that he prefers the alternative of resigning and will do so if he is ordered to accept the command. He has further telegraphed his brother, Senator Sherman, to have the military committee refuse action upon the nomination of the lieutenant general to be general by brevet, and, in accordance with his wishes, the senator will present a bill denying the authority of the president to make the change proposed. All this is in accordance with the antecedents of the general. He will not submit, nor has he ever submitted, to be made the instrument by which factious politicians may accomplish their chicaneries and intrigues. He, in common with all his fellow citizens, cannot but regard the attempt now being made to create a new military division and to confer upon him, at this time, an increased rank as anything but a blow aimed at General Grant for the purpose of curtailing the latter's powers. There is nothing in General Sherman's history which should have led the President to believe that he would willingly act as the blind tool of His Excellency's passion, or that he would allow himself to become an obstacle in the way of the execution of the popular will, which has determined that all possible power shall be lodged in the hand of the General so thoroughly esteemed and so heartily loved. The President has, however, made his experiment, and finds himself not only beset with legal obstacles concerning his power to create a new division, but has also to meet a more serious obstacle in the firmness and patriotism of General Sherman. His Excellency finds an immense amount of difficulty in bending the officers of the army to his purposes. He thought Ord was a pliant tool and he relied upon Meade, but both these generals were too honorable to lend themselves to his base schemes. He has tried Sherman and finds him equally intractable. We sincerely advise him to fall back upon Hancock and establish a military despotism at Washington, with the second Washington as his lieutenant. The only difficulty we can see in the way is that the officers under such an arrangement would be more numerous than the soldiers. All right, folks, you've made it through the preliminaries. Next time, we jump forward five days to February 22nd and land right in the middle of that Johnson Grant Thomas Stanton imbroglio. Yeah, they love that word. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.